welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I think this is episode 12, isn't it? It is, yes. Very exciting. I'm James Carey. With me is uh, Dave Cohen. Hello. Uh, our producer is Katie, as always. Hello. And very excitingly, we are joined by comedy producer David Tyler. Uh, hello. He was very kindly also let us use his palatial offices uh, here in London's West End. Um, so we're very grateful to you. Um, we've got a few bits of news to catch up on before we uh, talk to David specifically, but... Um, Dave, you had something that you'd seen about Bull. Uh, yes, that's right. It's uh, a uh, sitcom that is uh, UK TV's first sitcom commission. Interestingly, a lot of uh, channels, of the, uh, the, the non-mainstream channels, uh, are finding budgets for uh, making sitcoms, aren't they? There, yeah, I was there. surprised when they said it was their first sitcom commission because... Is it first original sitcom? Because they they did a Yes Prime Minister, didn't they? Or they did something like that. Uh, yes, that's right. That was uh, was that them and uh, and Comedy Central, I think, were also uh, making sitcoms. Yeah, uh, yeah. Although they're not UK TV, apart. but but yeah. yeah. So I thought they'd done stuff, but they are open for business. Yeah, and uh, they uh, this this new sitcom uh, Bull, and the way they actually made it was uh, they made an audience uh, studio sitcom, which. Uh, it's in fact a very expensive way of making sitcom, but actually they they uh, cut their costs a bit by filming the sitcom and then uh, showing the edited uh, version in front of a studio audience, which I think that's how they used to do it in America, didn't they? It's filmed in front of a live studio audience. Uh, that... there, there are other sitcoms that have done that. I think, uh, I think Big Top did great long sequences not in front of the audience. But right. did they do? Did they do part in front and part? Oh, not? May, maybe they yeah. did. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, mm. When we a long time ago, for those of you with memories of Steel, that's wrong. Uh, <laughs> we did uh, a sitcom called. Well, we did a one-off special called Cows, which was written by Eddie Izzard mm. uh, and Nick Whitby. Name check, well. and uh, I don't know whether it worked. Ultimately, I suspect Channel Four. Uh, I don't, in fact, we knew it hadn't really worked when, at the meeting after we delivered the tape, somebody went turned up and said, a very senior executive said, mm, "Maybe we should have done it as an animation." So, <laughs> uh, but what we we, we we had to shoot yeah. that without an audience because the cow's heads and the prosthetics and so on took so long to. Uh, to fit on, uh, but and then we showed it to an audience to get the laugh track, and that worked very well. You just have to be smart at editing. Yeah, no, because mm. it's hard to get the timing and everything. Yeah, yeah, you have to sort of show it loose and then tighten up afterwards. Mm. So this the is... best thing can I say about yeah. cows whilst we're on the subject. <laughs> um, cows itself uh, was was a bit of a mixed bag when it came out, partly because the prosthetics weren't they didn't give facial expression as much as. They needed it's, to. It's, it's a bad animal to choose. We discovered <laughs> haddock. Would However, better, I think <laughs> the um, the opening uh, title sequence where they're explaining how cows ended up getting the vote or something. Yes. There was a fantastic newsreel piece <laughs> which just set up the show absolutely brilliantly. I think it had suffragette cow throws itself under yeah. King's horse, <laughs> which was just great. So, in terms of how to set up a show really fast and economically, yeah. that is a lesson. Um, of course, Cows presumably is now widely available on iTunes or... Uh, uh, yes, I don't, actually, it'll probably be available on... Oh, no, it's not BBC Store, it'll be Channel 4. I don't know. No, it might be on... It, it'll probably be on YouTube where it should no, be. I mean, I'm knocking a few out on a barrow outside the office. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway. Palatial office. Yeah. Anyway, anyway. St- sticking to the bovine theme of sitcoms that have been filmed in front of an audience, or filmed, then edited, and then shown in front of an audience, Bull. Great! Uh, yes, thank you. Cows Lovely Radio 4 link there. <laughs> Um, got, uh, it starred, uh, starred, stars three episodes, Maureen Littman, Robert Lindsay, Matt Lucas. Uh, what a cast. 
and got a very nice review in the Independent. It's a, it's a surreal antiques shop. I described it as a cross between Are You Being Served and Black Books. Now, that, that's, that sounds like some cross to me. But anyway, uh, that's great to know that they are, uh, lots of people are producing sitcom. And uh, It's worth asking. Uh, it seems that the uh, UK TV and the, the, the cable channels are trying to make more sitcoms and yet always trying to find innovative ways to cut the costs of them. As an experienced television producer as well as radio producer, Mr Tyler, does this fill you with dread? Um, oh, that's a very interesting one. I suspect that they spend most of the money on the upfront talent and then uh, skimp on other things. And I use the word skimp angrily. Um, <laughs> you should have seen his face as he said <laughs> It's quite hard to say skimp in a kind of happy-go-lucky way, isn't it? Skimp well, it sounds like a skimp. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But... Um, so I don't, I, I don't know for sure, but I suspect they they dislike the realities of having five cameras and three get, three main sets and a guest set, uh, and possibly even shooting it twice with two different audiences and all the things that can make a sitcom really, really strong. But I think underlying all that, and it's probably worth saying, it, is if there is that magic ingredient um, between the cast and the writing, and it works even in part, it's going to fly. It's, you, know, you, you can watch stuff that is shot in the most shonky way, but if it's got that magic, mm-hmm. um, then sooner or later someone will do it properly. I think the thing that puts most uh, broadcasters off is the fact that um, nine out of ten times, even if the show is perfectly good, it's not going to be successful. And um, so that kind of brings us fairly nicely, really, on to, to my onto... career. <laughs> <laughs> well, into the world of radio, which yes. uh, where you are, I, I would say, the undisputed king of radio comedy producing, really, David, over mm-hmm. the, last, the last 30 years. How, can I he's, not, if... he's, he's not programmed to uh, receive this level of praise. No, I the reason, I say, the reason we're discussing this is because we had a tweet from at Grapefruit Moon, um, who said, any plans to discuss radio sitcoms on the podcast? There are now, and here we are. So thank you for tweeting yeah. at me. I'm at, at Sitcom Geek. So uh, if thank you do you. have yes. any ideas for what we should be talking about, then your wish is... I mean, our command is pretty, pretty pitching yeah. a bit strong. But Ask us a question and we'll answer it. But David, I'm curious to know. I, met, I first met you about 1985. You were doing stand-up, actually, I think, at the time. You were a BBC producer. So you've had, what, 30 years producing experience? How many uh, shows yeah. do you, would you say... Off the uh, top of your head? Uh, uh, well, since since I became an independent producer, left the BBC, probably about 365. Wow. Uh, as of the one I did on Friday. Okay. Right. Um, okay. But in, in the three years I was at radio, I don't know, probably a couple of hundred more. Right. Okay. Um, but a, they, really keep, they really work you hard there. Yeah. <laughs> so there is a David Tyler positive production for every day of the year. Yeah. You should do your own calendar. Or <laughs> <laughs> the biggest and most disappointing advent calendar <laughs> in the history. <laughs> it counts down the whole year to yeah. Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be like Great. one of those sort of motivational calendars where, you know, you have a kind of like, oh, August the 14th, that must be Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation, Series 3, Episode 2. Uh, there are worse ways to spend your time, aren't yeah. there? Listening to yeah, uh, Jeremy Hardy and Marcus Brigstock yeah. and our, our own Milton Jones. So, uh, 
Yeah. So we, we should we should actually this this is our this is our completely amateurish way of uh, of introducing David. Uh, but David has yeah. produced, among others, Sony Award-winning and Writer Guild Award-winning Marcus Brigstock uh, shows, and so there's Giles uh, Wembley Hogg, and yeah. also um, uh, shall I? Oh, yeah, so yeah, Giles Wembley Hogg and the Briggs Society. Briggs Society. Uh, Jeremy Hardy show. Jeremy Hardy speaks to the nation. Um, many incarnations of Milton Jones. Uh, yeah. Very well, Milton Jones. House of Milton Jones. Another case of Milton Jones. Thanks a lot, Milton Jones. Uh, can you spot the common factor? <laughs> uh, and um, sitcoms like My First Planet, Phil Williams is My First Planet, and uh, John Finnell's Cabin Pressure, and oh, we've um, heard of that. two mm. two new ones, Shush, Moana mm. Banks and Rebecca Front Shush, and one that goes out on uh, Wednesday the eleventh, uh, very very soon. Uh, nothing to do with or the very much in the past. <laughs> hearing yes, this. Yes, yes, according to the and it's called or, or, or on or on now. In which case, mm. switch this nonsense <laughs> off. And, um, and it's called the Lentil Sorters, and it's by Jack Bernhardt, oh, and okay. it's set in the Office of Local and National Statistics, uh, where, as he puts it, is either the source of power or where fun goes to die. Okay, right. Okay. Great. Well, that's it's, it's it's good to listen out for for that. So that'll be an iPlayer right yeah. now. I should have also mentioned the castle, otherwise Kim Fuller will come round and break my legs. <laughs> okay. Yes, he really will. <laughs> um, so we were, uh, in previous podcasts, we've talked about the importance of the first 10 pages. And uh, it would be great to get to talk to you as a producer, what you're looking for in those first 10 pages, because you uh, anyone can send you their script and you're very happy to read, read it at some point, eventually, hopefully. And... Um, what are you? What are the things that, when you open a script, uh, when you open the envelope or whatever it is, uh, what you well, hope, I looked what, at, what I looked, makes yeah, what I, makes your heart leap and what makes you want to cry? Well, I mean, if the postmark hasn't touched the stamp properly, it means I can soak it off and use it again. So that's, <laughs> that's great. It usually makes my um, okay. So um, the uh, this is going to sound really weird, but um, if the title is bad. Uh, that's incredibly off-putting because it worries you that the writer can't actually even get that right. So neutral title is fine. Right. You know, call it, if you can't think of anything, call it, cu- call it coupling yeah. or brothers yeah, or yeah. the hat or something. That's, that's fine. It's when, um, when it's, I mean, this is to, uh, to the risk of berating a sitcom, but I think most of its participants are no longer with us. There was a sitcom uh, starring the quite brilliant actress Wendy Craig, I think she might have written it, uh, called Laura and Disorder. Which was set in a police station, yes. and and you can see that sort of somebody somewhere has a tin ear and hasn't gone. Oh no! Uh, and so really, it's, I know it sounds really stupid, but the title is duff. Yeah. Um, so so play safe if you can't think of a doozy. Yeah. Uh, basically. Yeah. Um, so the first. Uh, wow, that's amazing because we we talked about how you know like in the first kind of two or three pages that you kind of get get a feeling with a script whether you like it or not. You're saying the actual <laughs> first three words. Well, it it well it does. The fact it does have an yeah, impact, yeah. doesn't it? Well, because okay, it's not. Um, great writers can write great titles. I think uh, it's it doesn't mean to say that uh, it's the only thing to be a great writer, but it's extraordinary uh, how hard it is to get right. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's uh, that's sort of one thing. But the truth is that in the first three or four pages, or what am I looking for? Um, okay, well, uh, yawn, boring jokes. Obviously, if it makes you, if it makes you laugh, then oh god, you'll read on. Yeah, um, that you know, extraordinarily so because you'll think, oh, how did they do that? Yeah, um, you know, I'm not jaded. I don't think I still laugh like a git at uh, any proper joke that's presented to me. Um, so I'm not sort of sitting there going, oh yeah, no, cynical. I won't laugh at anything. I really will, and I'm delighted if it happens. Um, that's something that actually yeah. that people, I think. Uh, Writers who are still trying to break in 
I think they do possibly worry that there is a conspiracy to keep them out. And that when I say producers really want to find very funny writers and oh, yeah, and you do. T- although it is hard, replace to- the shambles I'm working with. <laughs> <laughs> to to um, because you can't really rip open that many envelopes or open that many attachments and and dread the contents. You have to be really wanting to find something. Oh um, oh oh, you are. So, you, so you, are. You, you are expecting the worst because statistically it's likely, but you are still hoping for the best, aren't you? Oh yeah, yeah. You you really do want you do do want to laugh, honestly. And it, and if it happens, it's just you think, oh hello. How did that happen? Yeah. Blimey. Um, and it's unmistakable as well. I find it unmistakable. Um, I mean, obviously, it, ultimately, it will just be my opinion, but but I'd like to think that my opinion has a certain sort of isomorphism with what the audience will do, you know, further down the line when we say it out loud in front of them. Um, so, uh, and the other big thing, I mean, the, the, the huge, huge thing for me, you know, obviously, putting to one side, even notions of characterization and so on, mm. is uh, and, and budgetary considerations, um, is... Uh, is it a proper sitcom? So uh, I'll explain what I mean. And, I, and this, uh, the risk of, and, and if anyone who's listened to this has heard me gone about this before, uh, I despair of sitcoms that don't that hate their sit. So sitcoms where um, it's set somewhere and you know it's our workplace or something, and nobody's talking about it. Nobody wants to be there. They're all talking about what they did yesterday or what they're going to do tonight. Or it's a situation where there's one person who likes being there, but they're the comedy 50-year-old manager. Brackets, 50 is really, really, really ancient, isn't it, young writers? <laughs> Sub-brackets, no, it isn't. Not for the Radio 4 Close audience. Close brackets, no, for the Radio 4 audience, you're in nappies, frankly. <laughs> yes. Mr. Average. Yeah, yes. no. Um, so, uh, so sitcoms where, where they're, they're in a garden centre or they're in a library, uh, but all they talk about is, oh, it's rubbish here, what are you doing tonight? Yeah. Because then you haven't used the sit. Um, uh, sitcoms with no sit um, everyone goes on about nightingales because that they just sat around talking but actually it was sort of bollocks really wasn't it <laughs> um, you know it's, Dad's Army that's a sitcom Faulty Towers is a sitcom and, and what happens is that the situation has intrinsic tensions and intrinsic entrapments and all the things you all have read about in the books and are quite right mm. and it is a source of plots and it is a source of the kind of characters you would get there and it allows all the characters to have different relationships to the situation. Some want to work there, some are working there because they need the money, some are trapped there, some adore it. Um, so for me, that's a huge thing. If they just haven't bothered to... to it, it won't have legs. Um, in fact, there's times also with something else that um, uh, Kevin Cecil uh, spoke about when he was interviewed on this, where he said he had, he had to read quite a lot of scripts recently and he was quite surprised that you could just tell that they hadn't done any research. So it was set in a specific place but it just didn't have any kind of ring of truth oh, to it. Yes, no, I, I call that, have you got the Harper file, Miss Jones syndrome? Okay. Um, which is where it's set in an office and a character come out and say, have you got the Harper file, Miss Jones? And she'll go, oh, yes, here it is. And then they'll say, so what about the other thing? And then they'll get on with the plot. And yeah. you think, no, it's, 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 it's got to come from, I mean, you know, one could reel off a list of sitcoms as long as your arm that uh, that are, benefit hugely and intrinsic to the plot. I mean, just look at MASH, for goodness sake. Mm. I mean, you know, MASH is set in a mobile army surgical hospital. That's what it stands for, folks. <laughs> um, you know, and that's the point. Yeah. You know, yeah. so that's that's why, that, you know, there's, there's nothing extraneous to that. I wonder if, um, just drilling down into this for a little bit more, um, because writers and wannabe writers, they, they're trying to get out of work. They're trying to get out of having to do office jobs or any other sorts of jobs. And therefore, I wonder if, 
we or they make this make the assumption that no one could possibly find accountancy interesting. Oh well, no, but that's when okay. actually, um, mm. but it's more kind of. I think we just assume that if it's set in a place that we would find boring, everyone who works there doesn't want to work there. But then you're not. A, but then you're not a writer. Well, because because if you you know because if you can't write an eighteen year old uh, female school leaver, a sixty year old um, vicar who's about to retire, and you know if if all you can write is your you and your mates from university sitting around snarking, yeah, then you'll have a series on BBC Three. No, whoops, but um, <laughs> then no, then, I mean no, about sixty seventy percent of what I read um, is postgraduate people sitting around snarking. Uh, mm. And that's yeah, and of course that could be fantastic if you are if you turn out to be Simon Nye, mm. Mm. but then Simon Nye can write other things as well. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. And also he'd written that as a novel first and demonstrated that there was a story there and all that kind of stuff. In terms of you're referring yeah. to men behaving badly in particular. Yes, yeah. yeah. like, But there was a that also felt very much of its time. It was executed in a particular yeah. way that felt right. And, and it, it also yeah. had sort of two point two point three of the four greatest comic actors, you know, young comic actors yeah. of its time. Yeah. You know, if you you know try and get Clunes to do anything other than just bloody Doc Martin, and you'd have a hit sequel. <laughs> yeah. um, frankly, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, just I'm I'm interested because uh, radio, obviously, being a, di- a different medium to television. I mean, more uh, shows are made. On, I think there's right more shows commissioned on radio than all the all the TV more new shows commissioned than all the TV stations put together. And, um, and I, mean, I did the maths the other day and worked out that if, on average, most series are about six episodes per series, Radio Four to serve its all of its slot need about 120 series comedy series of six a year. A year. Um, lots of them are returning ones, and some of them run for longer than six, like the news quiz, or you know, so the Friday nights mm. and the and the uh, mm. are fairly sewn up, and and the Mondays as well. But there is an awful lot of opportunity there for radio. Are you are you predominantly sent radio scripts because of your radio track record? Did you get both? Or? Um, no, I, I mean, I, I get both, or I get some that's that where they don't actually know. Okay, well, that's, <laughs> well, that's, that's that, that's slight worry. The, I mean, one of the things that James and I talk about is when we we suggest to people that they should write for radio. One of the one of the first reasons we say you should do it is you should write for radio because radio is intrinsic intrinsically a fantastic thing, and you should write for radio because you want to write for radio. So, uh, but for new writers, what sort of things should they be doing with their scripts that are radio as opposed to? I mean, obviously. No visual gags um, is the, well, the first point. Beyond I, I, that, what else would you suggest? Well, my, I mean, my, my experience of working with people who are new to radio, well, indeed new to telly, mm-hmm. but new to radio, and, they, and they've got something or they've got an idea, is that it takes, is that the first thing that sort of comes right is the plotting and the dialogue. Um, because dialogue is dialogue. Mm. You know, ultimately, if you've got some characters doing, you know, doing a thing that's a motivation that's consistent with their characterizations and the plot. Um, a lot of that is very similar to what there is in television. A lot of massively successful and brilliant and rightly so television sitcoms actually could be put on the radio um, or put into audio vision. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Dinner Ladies so was very successful in an audio version. It was just a reversioning with with the occasional bit of added in commentary saying, oh, in, here Brenda comes in wearing a hat. Yeah. So that mm. so you all understand the scene. But, you know, mainly the dialogue worked. So that's the first thing that comes right. And then as you start working with the writer... They start to cotton on, I found, to what's enjoyable specifically to radio. Certain kinds of reveal jokes, um, certain speed of concept. 
Mm. You know, the, people joke about FX door rattle. Ah, oh, here we are. But God, it saves a lot of faffing around, doesn't it? Because does, you can yeah. just crack on with it. So, um, so that stuff tends to follow. So my instinct is not to say, um, make sure it's utterly, utterly radio mm. Um you know, right from the start, before you even put it in the envelope. It's more if the dialogue and the situation and the comedy that comes in the situation are sort of working. Um, it's got to have that in common with most sitcoms on telly as well. Then you'll start to enjoy what the radio thing is once you've got, once you've got your hooks into it and it into you. Mm. That's my experience. Mm. Um, we, I mean, I, I, I often recommend people work in radio as well, not least because uh, if you get to work with really good casts, because uh, you can just get a cast at the drop of a hat, potentially. Um, and in one sense, they're agreeing to do something that will require no makeup. They won't have to learn the lines. They can just turn up and do it. And it's especially if you've got a good script and they're excited about doing it, then you can suddenly find yourself working with some fantastic people. Um, and you must have found that over. Yeah, over radio. The years. Well, that, that's right. You can um, you can not only not having to not learn it, or um, you also can be pregnant. Um, which is quite handy for uh, up to 50% of the acting population Um, and uh, yes it's they're not in they like doing it they also to the sort of it appeals to something actorly in a lot of people as well because it's quite pure because they're doing it all with a voice and it's sort of true and they are Uh, and um, Radio 4 is also very well respected Mm. You know, you sort of you, you might open the Radio Times and see, oh, well, you know, it's a new play, and it's got sort of Ian McKellen or Michael Gammon in it. And you sort of it wouldn't stun you. You wouldn't think, wow, how do they get them? You think, yeah, yeah, that's quite posh then. Yeah. Um, and obviously, yes, I've worked with uh, actors that are sort of off the telly and really famous, mm. um, but they all like, and they, yeah, they like doing it. It's, um, well, the other thing, well, the other thing that weirdly, I, I think you're right to say it is very respected, and therefore you do get good people, and when it works, it's great. But um, I've just written down here, failure is an option. And um, well, what I mean by that is... If it's you certainly la- been my motto. If you, <laughs> if, you, if you launch a TV sitcom and, it's, and it just doesn't quite work, people will jump up and down, demand your head on a spike and want to dance on your grave. If you launch a sitcom, radio sitcom, and it just doesn't quite fire in the way yeah. that you'd hoped, nobody minds too much and you may get a second series to fix it or you may not. You, you'll get a chance to do another one maybe if you come up with the right idea. It doesn't feel like it's as exposed um, as, as a TV show and therefore for me it feels like a really good place where you can just get experience. Because by the time that I was writing proper TV scripts I'd probably already done 30 episodes of radio and I felt like I'd got quite a lot of experience that was relatively beneath the radar. So I wonder if that's your experience too unless you have some no no I produced an awful show and everyone hated it I was on the front page of the times well well, um no well I mean I think I think what you're saying is sort of a corollary of the relationship between radio to television anyway both in terms of sort of column inches uh money you get paid for doing it and uh, fame you do or don't get thereupon um that's it's all sort of pretty consistent I don't Mm. know what the ratio is it's probably about a fifth mm. for every single one of those parameters. Right. A fifth of the money, fifth of the fame, fifth of the number of people being interested. Five times as exciting a cast, though. Mm. Um, Although, it, interestingly, yeah. audience-wise, radio gets radio comedy gets a hell of a lot more people yeah, than the uh, vast majority, I think, of the... Well, it, it does, and this is interesting. Um, about half six, uh, the standard audience comedy slot on Radio Foz can be about three million. 
Mm. Um, peep show never gets above 750,000. Yeah. Um, the thing, the difference, of course, is that 750,000 are all on Twitter. Yeah. Um, and uh, whereas most of the three million live in in the British Isles somewhere. Yeah. Uh, that strange odd place which doesn't have monsoon and Noah Noah and Uniqlo in it. Um, so, uh, and they don't sort of bang on about it much. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I found that that is the downside though, because I found it frustrating when I was doing a lot of radio uh, sort of 10, 15 years ago and having been moderately successful at it, if I may say, um, but getting meetings with TV producers and TV producers sort of being relatively unaware of anything I'd done. And even within the BBC, as it were, saying, giving the impression of, oh, do we, do we still do radio? I, I didn't know that was a thing. Um, especially yeah. at the time when the two departments were geographically separate. Uh, the TV was, in, was out in uh, White City and the radio department so it's was in a the caravan, wasn't it? Yes, that's yeah. right. Gravel pit and And now, actually, they're in the same building, which I yeah. think is... Which they is, can ignore which is, each other from much more closely. Very effectively. Uh, a, a fairly senior executive in comedy, who shall be nameless, didn't know at one point there was an independent radio sector either. Right. I have no idea. Sorry, really. you're serious. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, this was last year. Wow. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Which so, is mildly, yeah. mildly disconcerting if you were trying to tell them about programs you made as a radio independent. Right. Yes. No. I'm, okay. Yes. I can imagine that would be that would be awkward. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that's yes. I mean, one of the other things we were going to uh, talk about as well is that the, the speed with which you can get a radio show from the point of which it's uh, you. It, it, you come up with the idea to the point at which it goes out can be a much, much uh, shorter amount of time. However, I did want to talk to you about Shush because I know for a fact that Shush, which is your latest sitcom set in the library, um, has been around that for a long, long time. Yeah, well, that was um, that was slightly anomalous, I think, because it was a television development which Armando Nucci did with Rebecca Front and Winner Banks. And uh, they made a pilot and then they... Uh, this is very a very television experience. They made a triad pilot with sort of half sets um, and not enough cameras and everyone watched it and said oh it looks a bit half setty and not enough cameras uh, at which point you slowly beat the ground with your fists and then <laughs> yes. reconvene and, and this then, was what about five years oh ago? I think so yeah Six or possibly years. before I was born I don't know <laughs> uh, and then they made um, and then they made another fuller pilot and then radio, and then BBC eventually turned it down right um, as they're entitled to do I guess uh, and then it sort of lolloped around for a bit and then they decided to give it another go on radio. So, um, so Armando sort of said, yeah, no, go ahead, go for it. So we made it. And then they did a script, and then that went round for a bit, and then another script, and then finally we got to make the fish dink in a thing. So mm. here we are, yes. Mm-hmm. But that, I mean, that's quite an unusual experience in one yeah, sense, because it, they ten, it tends... And that, for me, is the other great... I think us and Dad's Army, the only thing that's ever happened to. <laughs> yeah. I think, because for me, the other joy of radio is the fact that you can often be recording relatively close to transmission... I, by which I mean, <laughs> yeah. In fact, I can't stay here that long. Because no, I've got to yes, exactly. Yes, yeah. um, but yeah, it, but it, it can be weeks. I mean, sometimes hours, but it can be weeks rather than months. So yeah. um, that can be quite exciting. Um, and also, yeah. I just think the quality of just the the intimacy of radio, I think, is something also quite special. From from a writer's point of view, the, um, you're far more, or you should be, far more involved, or you're allowed to be far more involved in radio than you are in telly as well. Not not for bad reasons, or not for bad reasons telly-wise. You know, in radio, there's you, the producer, and the, and the broadcast assistant, and the cast. So, um, whereas in telly, as we know, uh, mm. 
you'll give your script to the producer. You might work incredibly closely with the producer and the director and, and the script editor if they're not all the same person or three different people. Um, but then it gets given to 493 people. Yes. Um, all of whom wear gilets. Um, <laughs> and, uh, all and, of who earn a lot more money than you. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and for turning up on the day as well. Yeah, and regularly. Like, and money regularly yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Imagine. <laughs> Um, so and and they all sort and and they all sort of dash off with it and 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 it can be quite hard, particularly if you're not a writer performer who's obviously sort of intrinsic to what's going on in front of camera, to not let it get away from you a bit. Um, whereas on radio, you're, yes, you're very heavily involved right up to you know right up to transmission, and that's really nice. I wanted to ask you about that actually because we talked last uh, podcast about writer the right the rise of the writer performer. You've worked a, a lot with writer performers, but also just with pure writers. Yeah. And um, are you worried about how, how how the kind of the writer performer uh, is kind of pervading all areas of of? of oh comedy? no, I mean I, th- I think the the, the writer performer is one of, one of the keys to comedy, um, and they've always been you know fa- fabulous, tremendous writer performers. I mean. Uh, now, how old are your how old is your average listener? Does anyone remember Victoria Wood? You know, she, <laughs> she, I mean, you know, one of the uh, original of this era writer performers, and and, and doesn't uh, doesn't work with any other writers, you know. So all of as seen on TV, all of uh, um, the playlists she did, you know, Men Sandra and Thingy Me Doo and all those, let alone Dinner Ladies and all the Christmas specials she's done since, entirely her. Uh, so one could hardly sort of say that oh it's risen and gone beyond control when there didn't used to be any. Uh, yeah, no, that's true. Although yeah. it's interesting now that um, I think in the last podcast we noted that when they did Britain's best sitcoms, yeah, the top out of the top twenty or thirty, there was only a couple that were it's Faulty Towers and Ab Fab or something that were. That the were, rest were all writers, written, written all by, just writers. by by just yeah. writers, yeah. and therefore, I've, and I don't think we're I think I don't think we're saying it's all worse now, but it's just different. And so I'm wondering yeah. how that affects the right, you know, the writer rather than the writer perform, and what opportunities there are out there. The as people a starting of that. out now who don't perform. Oh well, one actually one path which isn't very much talked about, I don't think, and uh, is that writers who hook up with writer performers, um, you know, like said Dan Mazer with Sasha Baron Cohen, uh, or you know, so you know, if you th- there are some writer performers out there who actually do have, or indeed, sort of um, Higgs and Whitehouse starting, you know, when they started working with Harry Enfield. Um, it it is a, a not a not crazy path if you're really into comedy and you go and see lots of stuff, um, or you know Pete Sinclair and Trevelyan working with Jack D on Lead Balloon. Mm. Um, you know if you you know go and see a performer, get to know them, you know move, move in the same circles, and mm. they might well have uh, want to do a sitcom or have an idea in them, but really really would benefit from a co-writer mm. or from working out. And I'd, I'd not heard that spoken about that much. Yeah, and, it's, yeah. and as going back to radio. That's not a terribly common thing within radio, is it? It tends to be a writer performer or uh, a writer. I mean, you, you have the uh, so you have some sketch shows or comedian shows which aren't sitcoms that have other writers on them, but it tends to be. And, and, I, and, I, and I wonder if again why I particularly like radio is that radio seems to still have a lot of respect for writers who aren't performers. Offer a lot more opportunities yeah. for them. I think. Well, I think the the reason for that is that you can um, the relationship between the written script and what's going to happen on the radio, uh, from a commissioning editor's point of view, is much closer. Well, two reasons. First of all, the commissioning editors in in radio aren't ninnies, so uh, they can read a script and, and relate it. They can relate it to what what they're going to hear when it's finally done. Partly because it's not that complicated a relationship, and partly, as I said, because they're not. 
uh, the aforementioned word ninnies. Um, <laughs> television people may have an incredible uh, ear and eye for what the script is going to turn into, you know, and may mm. have a, a track record as long as you're armed with their own. Um, but they'll also be subject to lots of pressures uh, that I can only describe as, you know, lots of pressures and difficulties that are entirely spurious and stupid but seem very real at the time, what they think the controller wants, what the local, the latest research figures say, the, the mm. sort of sitcom people are looking for. And they're very subject to demand-led commissioning, yes. where they go to meetings with lots of very unfunny people who say, we need something that's both um, tribal and sexy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and yeah, go, yeah. Oh, right, and then you commission a script that's wrong, but may, or, but may be both tribal and sexy, yeah. uh, whatever either of those words mean. Do you, <laughs> do you get, I mean, uh, with the, just just briefly explain how the, the, the sort of the how an independent radio show gets to go on radio you've got it's, it's a it's a relatively short uh sort of journey for you isn't it um yes so uh if if someone sends me something and i like it then we work on it and then i give it to radio four and they say yes or no yeah but there's no you know, uh, <laughs> sorry it's, no, it's I, yeah. that, that that is genuinely yeah. it so obviously in in-house i think they mm. clearly have layers of um, their own executives who you have to sort of work to and mm. and satisfy and you may well do but I think yeah. it's a slightly longer process slightly but still compared to television it feels still slightly less yeah, but, it's, but it's, not it's, yeah. Yeah, but it's, it is it's glacial as opposed to Cretaceous yeah. <laughs> you're aware, I mean there's a new uh, comedy commissioning editor now for relatively new for Radio 4 Sean Ed Williams yes. who's taken over from Caroline Raphael who was there for what 15 years have you noticed any change at all and um, she's slightly shorter well, no, I mean, Sean Ed is an extremely experienced producer of her, in her own right. She's done Big Train and she's done Yonderland, apart from anything else. Uh, so that's, I feel like that's really, really good news. Yeah. Um, mm. Not that there haven't been great executives who haven't produced stuff, but mm. the ones who have. Uh, it does help, nice. doesn't it? Well, it feels nice because you feel you're talking the same language and she's an avowed fan of jokes, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. which is possibly a good thing. I think um, it's very much me. a good thing. Yeah, yeah. We, we like um, jokes. But as the deadline for the commissioning round is tomorrow. Um, so Again, I the, other, the other day, if you're listening to this yeah. podcast later. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it, it, yeah. The, the journey from idea, as it were, to to the finished product, to the transmission. Well, journey from idea, a journey from idea to script that's good enough to intrigue a producer may is uh, that's that's impossible to sort of get, yes. isn't it? That's that's your call. But journey from script uh, that's where you go, oh hello, mm. uh, to, right? Let's hand this in to, to uh, teacher uh, mm. can be quite short. Yes, yeah, yeah, should yeah. be short really, just you know to keep the sort of you know excitement up because there, there's nothing more corrosive than endless endless read-throughs and rewrites and people going mm, not sure can we can we needlessly do nothing for a month and then have another read-through with a slightly different cast wow it's almost as if you've worked in television <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, um, which did... of course you have i mean in terms of uh, we're talking a lot about radio here but going back you know you've done a uh, a ton of television as well. Yes, with the likes of Steve Coogan and and those guys Sorry, again, writer yeah. performers. Mm. Uh, yes, although Steve, uh, it probably um, Steve Coogan harks back to something uh, I was mentioning mm. before, uh, which is that he hooked up with, you know, one one side of what he did, the, not the Partridge stuff, but one side of what he did was hooking up with a writer who really got him, really understood him, uh, and was able to sort of absolutely crystallise and reinforce what Steve did, um, Henry Normal. Right. You know, now one of the most successful, you know, television executives around, and rightly so, mm-hmm. um, but started, you know, sitting there with Steve writing together. 
Uh, and although he was a performer in his own right as a poet, yeah. um, you know, he was as a writer, he, you know, he worked with Stuart. Was he the third member of Packet of Three? I'm just trying to think whether he um, was. Yes, he was. With Jenny yes, Clare and Frank Skinner, Skinner. I think Jenny you might Clare. be right. Yeah. Yeah. But yes. do you remember what it used to be yeah. called before it was Packet of Three? I don't. No, I yes. can't remember. Oh, <laughs> but it, it was, that was its second incarnation. That's not fair. He was a stand-up poet, basically. That's he was. was. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So and I think Henry, Henry Normal is a real name. Yes. A quarter of Fame. I think that was one of his books. Mm. Can't remember. I have them both. I think that's uh, pretty much it for now. I think. Um, are there any, any other bits that you would sort of just uh, wish that comedy writers or wannabe comedy writers would, for heaven's sake, please none of this, please. Uh, I mean, it sounds like you're being sent quite a lot of. Twenty somethings not doing very much. Yeah, kind well, of shows, um, which a you twenty-three-year-old know. uh, uh, alarm clock wakes up, realizes he's late. He is late for that job interview. Stumbles around, swears, checks the bed, and realizes, oh, last night he slept with man or woman or horse or pile of sick. <laughs> uh, runs out to job interview, treads in some dog poo um, on the way, but goes to the interview anyway. Yeah, not that then. No, uh, that, right. okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think I mean the the alarm clock going off is really quite a still quite a common way of starting a script, isn't it? And I, mm. it is it's a very disappointing unless you've got a particularly good well, angle on it. Yes, or it de- uh, it depends. I mean, if the, if it's if it turns out to be relevant to the character, then well done you, frankly. Mm. But um, it tends not to be. No, it really doesn't. <laughs> it's hard put to think what yes. kind of. I suppose one set in a sort of uh, ancient chronometer workshop. Yeah. Um, and it starts on the long clock and then someone hits it and you think it's because they're cross and it's because it wasn't a good enough chronometer. <laughs> I'd, I'd read that. Yeah. And you would genuinely, though, when you get the next script and you'll see the clock starting, you'll go, oh, it's Groundhog Day. And it really is actually Groundhog Day. It's that same script I read yesterday. Oh, no, slightly different. Just, yeah, if you just sent you the same script day after day, yeah. there's something in yeah. that, sort of some kind of performance submission process. Um, sorry he's just started to cry Um, I think that means that we are at the end of our podcast thank you very much to David Tyler for uh, being with us giving us his wisdom and experience Uh, we could go on all day um, but but we hadn't better because David has some uh, comedy to produce I'm I'm also now wondering what tense hadn't better (laughs) (laughs) so we can analyse that later Um, Please like us on Facebook. I know that sounds needy, but it does help us build up uh, the brand of the, of the podcast. We, also on Facebook, you can ask us questions, leave a comment on iTunes, buy our books, read our blogs, follow us on Twitter. I'm at Sitcom Geek, and uh, Dave Cohen is... At Cohen Dave. And David Tyler is... David Tyler Poz, I think. No, David Tyler Poz, double Z, is that right? It is, yes. Yes. Yeah. And, so, and thank you very much to David also for giving us the space to record the podcast. Thank you to the British Comedy Guide for hosting our podcast and faithfully uh, putting it up there on the internet for everyone to listen to. And thank you to Katie, our producer. Thank you. Also on Twitter, at K.E. Story. Sorry, K.E. Story is also on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And thank you very much for listening and uh, speak to you next time.